Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Hey, Proof listeners, I want to tell you about a great podcast I recently discovered called Naked Lunch. It's hosted by Phil Rosenthal, creator of one of my favorite shows on Netflix, Somebody Feed Phil. Phil and his pal, renowned music journalist David Wilde, have conversations over lunch with some of the most interesting people they know. If you love great conversations with fascinating people, and if you love lunch, I know I do, this is the podcast for you. Follow and listen to Naked Lunch wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All right, pop quiz proof listeners. I'm going to tell you about a dish. Listen closely. Chili's has a dish called the Southwestern Egg Roll. It contains crispy flour tortillas, chicken, black beans, corn, jalapeno jack cheese, spinach, and a sauce of avocado ranch. The question, is it an egg roll? All right, next question. There's an item called buffalo chicken sushi. I'm not kidding. It has grilled chicken, cream cheese, hot sauce. It's rolled in rice and wrapped with seaweed. The question, is it sushi? All right, last question. Burger King has something called the Impossible Whopper. Same ingredients as the beef version, except the patties are made of soy protein. The question, is it still a cheeseburger? See, it's pretty hard to answer these sorts of questions, right? And that's the thing about food. When a beloved dish changes, morphs, and evolves, at what point do we have to call it something else? Where do we draw that line? Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, we focus on a bowl of pho, the noodle soup that's Vietnam's national dish. The question, when is pho not pho? Try to say that 10 times fast. I'm Kevin Pang. Thanks for listening. Stick around. The world of food is vast. That's exactly why Augusta Scoffier's School of Culinary Arts blends classic culinary methods with a sound business foundation. Escoffier helps prepare students for whatever path they choose. Whether it's at their campuses in Boulder, Colorado, Austin, Texas, or getting instructions online from the convenience of your own kitchen, there's a place for you to create a career that truly caters to who you are. For more information, visit escoffier.edu. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Reporter Andre brings us today's story. To understand my love for pho, let me start with my mother. Several years ago, my husband was transferring family photos and videos onto a new hard drive. He found a 30-second clip of my mom and our firstborn daughter, Eswin. In it, she's still a toddler with pigtails. She's decked out in a much-too-fancy black velvet dress. They're both sitting at the dining table at my home in Nevada. My kitchen was located by the laundry room. The washer was spinning in the background. You bring yourself home. Bye. My mom's hands were busy. 
always busy. She was assembling a stash of pre-measured pho spices. Coriander seeds, cinnamon, anise, and others were spread out on the table. Her packets were intended to make it easier for me to fire up a pot of pho. All the while, she was having a total ba, or grandma moment, with a granddaughter she treated like a princess. You beautiful girl for who? Ba! You sing the weather for who? Ba! You're right. You're very good girl, right? In the video, my mom tells me that when Ezwin is older, she's going to leave her everything. My mom said Ezwin would be okay with that. Finding that video flooded me with emotions. My husband had discovered it a few years after my mom's death in 2015 from breast cancer. My daughter Ezwin was 10, my son Trevin was 8, and my youngest Carice was just 6. We were all heartbroken. Before her death, my mother's visits to see us in Reno were legendary. It meant that we'd all be spoiled with her affections, generously doled out in love and an endless array of Vietnamese dishes. Once, she called me from her home in California and quizzed me about my supplies for making pho. After deeming my kitchen provisions inadequate, she shipped a giant box to my doorstep. The contents included a huge stock pot, packages of pho noodles, and an assortment of spices used to give the broth its distinctive flavor. And when she landed at the airport, she insisted I take her to the store. She wanted to get fresh ingredients, ginger, onions, limes, and everything else she needed to fill my kitchen with the aroma of her home cooking. In the years after she died, I tried to make a pho that lived up to my mom's version. But in the last year, I haven't made any pho at all. It pains me to report there has been a pho-making moratorium. And I feel like something is missing from my life. To understand why I stopped making a dish I love, let me start with my daughter, the one in the video from 15 years ago. She's now a teenager. We stopped making pho. I think the main reason is because I went vegetarian in March of 2021. And the reason why I made this choice is because starting in sixth grade, we kind of started cutting out more of the animal products and dairy that we ate as a family. And I kind of just wanted to see what it felt like to cut the extra meat that I ate completely out of my diet. As a mom, I was supportive of my daughter's choice. I made vegetarian versions of some Vietnamese dishes, but couldn't do it with pho. It's a classic. It's like you can kind of try and replace it, but it's, it's like kind of irreplaceable. I didn't want to change a dish I considered perfect. Losing my mom had been hard enough. For me... Making pho is one of the few ways I can still hang on to her and the sense of culture she desperately tried to instill in me. I don't want to alter that connection. But the pho moratorium has been dismal. I miss the ritual of crafting a broth that takes hours, and I miss serving a dish that is received with gratitude and savored with memory. I feel my mother's absence more deeply 
not making any pho at all. I want to make it again for my family. It's kind of sad because it is really good. And like every time I come back from school, it's like the first thing I want to have. And then it kind of, I kind of had to stop requesting that as like my first meal home. And it's sad because it's like, oh, you crave it a lot, you know? So in 2022, I've decided to put an end to the moratorium. I'm ready to attempt making a vegetarian pho that honors the tradition of my mother and culture, while also embracing something new for my daughter. I'm prepared to explore how food connects us to the past and how perhaps altering a deeply held traditional recipe can welcome what the future holds. I'm willing to take this journey and see where it leads me. The kitchen was my mom's canvas. She was an artisan who created and shared. A petite woman, about five feet tall, she wielded big knives with flair and produced complex dishes with such ease. She also had this knack of being able to eat a meal at a restaurant and recreate it without a recipe at home, tastier even. It was a bit annoying. We could hardly enjoy eating out because she would always declare, I could make this better. Although my mom made many crave-worthy Vietnamese dishes, her pho existed in a category of its own. To me, the flavors of the broth are complex, but the ingredients are simple. Noodles, broth, protein, and herbs for garnish. The warming spices in the broth are soothing and somehow both light and satisfying. Pho is Vietnam's national dish. If I could choose one last meal to eat on Earth, it would be this. But now, when I want to make pho or something Vietnamese, I can no longer call my mom for guidance. Instead, I turn to Andrea Nguyen's cookbooks. She is an acclaimed food writer, and I refer to her recipes time and time again. In 2018, Andrea received the James Beard Foundation Book Award for the pho cookbook. My copy has post-its all over it for notes and as page markers. Having used her recipes all these years, I feel like she's already been in the kitchen with me. That's why I was thrilled when she agreed to talk with me. If I was going to make a vegetarian version, I want to honor its history. Pho is uniquely Vietnamese in the sense that it was created at the turn of the 20th century, you know, late 1800s into the early 1900s in Hanoi. When the French were there, the colonial French, and the colonials really liked their steaks and they began slaughtering cows and they left the less tender parts, the offal, the bones to the locals. And cooks, whether they were Vietnamese or Chinese, weren't really used to selling beef. The Vietnamese took the bones and less tender beef and made pho their own. They were used to selling and cooking up water buffalo, if there was even some. And so people started swapping beef in for water buffalo in a particular noodle soup. Substituting beef for the water buffalo was critical in the evolution of pho. The thin and scarlet slices of meat is a classic in the beef version of the dish. So when you take a look at the evolution of pho, it's really this interesting concept of 
Culture is rubbing shoulders on Vietnamese soil and a new dish was born out of something else. The evolution of pho reminds me of my own family's journey to America as refugees, adapt in order to survive. My family fled the war in Vietnam in 1975. In our early days in America, my family had little to spare and wasted nothing. My mom could take any leftover ingredient and produce another tasty dish. Now I was about to try to make my own iteration of a vegetarian pho without any meat. But I had to get the foundation right. What are the absolute must-haves when it comes to making pho? Andrea says there are two key components. The first is what gives pho its namesake. So pho is a noodle soup. It also stands for the noodles itself, the flat rice noodles, which we call bun pho. If you are chiu chow, chow zhou or teochiu, that Chinese extraction, you would call them hu tiu, ban hu tiu. So ban hu tiu and ban pho are the same flat rice noodles. Then comes the spices. My mom had her own special blend. This is what she was packaging in that video with my daughter years ago. The spice notes vary according to your region and who you are as a cook. But they're typically warm spices. So star anise, clove, fennel, cassia or cinnamon stick. And also if you're Northern Vietnamese and you're making beef pho, then you like to put what's called black cardamom in there, which has like a certain smoky quality and it's kind of medicinal. If you're making chicken pho, and if you're a Northerner like my mother, then the spices are very coriander-centric and cilantro-centric. As Andrea points out, the bun pho, or rice noodles, and the spices are the two main building blocks of an authentic pho. I still have a gallon-sized Ziploc bag my mom left me on one of her last visits. On the bag, scribbled in permanent marker, is my mom's handwriting. She had written down the ingredients for making a pot of beef pho. There used to be about a dozen packets inside. It now contains one last bundle of my mom's spice blend. Over the years, making pho was bittersweet for my family. We ate each bowl savoring the fact that her hands had measured out the spices. It didn't take long until the last one remained. We decided not to use it. Instead, we saved it as a reminder of her spice mix. At the end of the day, you want to think about the kind of spice notes that are involved because there really isn't any other Vietnamese noodle soup that has warm spices involved that way. And there's always a little note of sweetness. Southerners like a sweeter broth. Northerners like it salty. And so there's all of these variations in what I call regional pho fights. (laughs) And they're fun. Our family had influences from both. My mom was originally a northerner, but the family she grew up in was displaced after the partition of Vietnam following the 1954 Geneva Accords. About 800,000 Vietnamese migrated to the non-communist zone in the South. She had lived through displacement then, too. Born in the North and raised in the South, my mom's pho represented both. She was generous with the cardamom typical of the North, but she would also slip in chunks of rock sugar to sweeten the broth common in the South. 
Her broth was bold and balanced. I remember this vividly. Andrea says food continues to change as ideas flow back and forth. I ask her what's her approach to exploring food as it evolves. When I go to research food, I do my best to have a beginner's mind approach because Vietnamese food is one of these things that just changes so quickly. And because I don't live in Vietnam, I'm always learning something new. After talking to Angie Nguyen, I set out to end the pho moratorium. My husband and I pack up the car, the kids, our two dogs pile in, and we embark on a road trip. The destination is Little Saigon in Orange County. It's a Vietnamese-American enclave full of shops and places to eat. I grew up near there. I decided that if I'm going to stray a bit from tradition, I'll at least do it where my cultural roots are deep. And I've got a particular store in mind. It's a place my mom often shopped for supplies, items to fill those care packages she used to send me. Starting Roots Tea and K-Food Market. Head west on West First Street. Are you craving anything today? Uh, I wouldn't mind going to a couple of the uh, dessert places as well. There are other Little Saigons in the U.S., but this one is considered the oldest and largest in the country. My family arrived in the U.S. after the fall of Saigon, and we eventually relocated to California in 1980. Like many Vietnamese families, starting a business was a way to survive. My mom liked to shop at various places. TNK was one of them. I think we might need a car. As we entered TNK, I roamed the aisles with my kids. First, we looked for ban pho, the noodles. There are so many to choose from. You can get them fresh or dried, and they come in different sizes, from thin to broad. I buy the fresh, thin ones. Along with the noodles, I picked up some items I needed. Thai basil, spices, and a few other ingredients. My kids asked me what it's like to be back at TNK. It's it's definitely a trip down memory lane for me. And like you said in the car, it's a little bittersweet, you know, makes me long for the past and my family a little bit. But then it's also exciting to be able to share it with my kids and, you know, show you a little bit of Vietnamese culture. It's also a bit hard being back in Little Saigon. My mom was a part of the Vietnamese community in Orange County, where she lived and worked for about four decades. So it hurts that she's not the one taking my kids to all her favorite spots, sharing her stories, and passing on traditions. But I try my best. I want my children to know this community represents strength and rebirth. On the streets of Little Saigon are hundreds of mom-and-pop businesses, the evidence of pride and purpose. The stories born here are a part of American history. To understand this more, I reach out to someone who's made it her mission to document and elevate stories from the Vietnamese community. My name is Thuy Bodeng, and I'm currently the curator for UCI Southeast Asian Archive. I have a background in ethnic studies. About a decade ago, I came to UC Irvine to develop an oral history project collecting stories from Vietnamese Americans throughout Southern California. Thuy is a co-author of the book Vietnamese in Orange County. Her work explores how the Vietnamese rebuilt their lives. 
Her insights help me to see my own family's work in the context of community building. I think that actually Vietnamese refugees brought with them an entrepreneurial spirit that preceded our displacement. It was always part of how we adapted and survived in the homeland after centuries of upheaval and war and colonialism. But I think certainly that needing to adapt to build resources where we actually live brought a lot of people into the the grocery and restaurant business very early. Thuy is also a refugee with her own stories. Even though this was the first conversation I ever had with her, we immediately recognized a common existence. We exchanged stories about our memories, shopping and eating at the main drag, Bosa Avenue. And when I told her that my parents once owned a restaurant and one of the specialties was ga nương, a baked catfish dish, this serendipitous moment happened. It's still my favorite place to get Ganung. And also I have a personal attachment to that restaurant because that was where my husband proposed to me. What? <laughs> yes. A long, oh long time ago. Was, yeah. Really? This felt like a wink from above. It meant a lot to me to learn that my family's restaurant owned and operated many moons ago holds a special memory in someone's life. I remembered when we were growing up how hard they worked. Long hours, strenuous work. As a teen, I spent my weekends and summers working there too. I'm not proud to admit this, but I sometimes resented it back then. To me, it felt like other kids my age got to be more carefree. But I understand my family now in a way that I couldn't when I was younger. It's perilous to flee a war-torn country and then have to rebuild your entire life from scratch. That's what my family and so many others had to do. I'm humbled by their courage. And Twee's connection to my family's restaurant reminded me that their work and cultural contributions endured. And Pho's popularity feels symbolic of a cultural endurance going beyond the Vietnamese community, too. And the options are just as varied as the people. If you ask, you know, five Vietnamese people what, what they think of any particular Pho place, Pho 79 versus Pho 45 versus, you know, Pho-licious or Pho-holic, they're going to have their own favorites. I remember going to Vietnam and having Hanoi Pho for the first time in the North, and I was just like, this is not my palate. You know, I'm such a Southerner. And I had grown up with a Vietnamese American pho too. So I think, you know, realizing that we're also not a monolith, right? Vietnamese Americans come from all these different regions with regional diversity. For ethnic communities, food is a bridge, what you share. The Vietnamese rice and noodle dishes with their unique spices and flavors were not a part of mainstream America in my youth. Now they can be found on many corners and communities around the country. Pho is no longer viewed as completely foreign. I think over the years, the role of food has become so much more, um, especially with kind of the transnational elevation of Vietnamese food along with other Asian foods. It's become a, a way for this next generation to have this sense of cultural pride and in-group membership in ways that for my generation, it was merely like, you know, you hid that part of yourself, right? Vietnamese food was part of the private aspect of your identity. For me, I want to hold on to my memories and identity. 
Vietnamese food, culture, and history are my roots, and I don't want to lose them. The Vietnamese diaspora is spread far and wide, and I know I'm not the only one trying to bring our shared history into our present lives. As my family and I leave TNK with our pho ingredients, I'm reminded of my cousin, Amari, who was born and raised in a suburb outside of Paris. We've always had a close bond, but now we share a similar grief. Amari's dad died last summer. I reached out to Amari around Lunar New Year. In Vietnamese, we call this holiday Tet. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy Tet? Happy Tet, yeah. For Amari and me, and perhaps for other people of the Vietnamese diaspora, we know it takes effort to stay connected to our culture. Amari is mixed race. His mother is French and his father is of Vietnamese descent. In Amari, I see a bit of myself, but I mostly see my three kids who are also multiracial and multicultural. When uh, you don't know your roots, it's really hard to live with that because something is missing. And uh, we try to connect to something. And uh, in the past with, uh, with my brother, uh, when we are adults, huh? maybe we are, I was 33 and maybe he, he was 30 years old. We try to reconnect and to try to learn Vietnamese and to make some Vietnam activities, Vietnamese activities like uh, our martial art, like the Bovinam Viet Bo Dao, something like that. In the last year since Omri's dad died, he learned what I've been experiencing for six years since my mom died. The death of a parent creates a chasm. When I lost my mother, I lost a beloved parent. And I also lost a cultural ambassador. It is a challenge, especially because I'm not so Vietnamese and I don't know the Vietnamese culture uh, as well that I want to, to know it because it was not so much my tradition, you know. Like me, Amorine uses Vietnamese food as a pathway to search for something buried deeper. He told me that during the pandemic, he tried his hand at making ban quân. It's a savory Vietnamese dish commonly eaten for breakfast. The rice flour mixture is steamed into thin and sticky crepes, which can be filled with minced pork and onions. I told Amory about my pho moratorium, but that I planned to end it. He reassured me and suggested how to stay true to the tradition of pho. The most important thing is to have the soup. And I take an onion, I cook in two, and I make on a pan, and I, I, I make... Uh, this is how my cousin Amory in France makes pho, the same as how I make pho in the U.S., and how the Vietnamese people prepare it in the place it first originated. All the people making pho around the world follow a similar process. I find this comforting. It seems I've had a roadmap for making an authentic vegetarian pho all along. Even though when it comes to food, we eat first with our eyes, my mind and heart also determines what I think about the food I'm eating. Now I have a way forward, and I'm willing to adapt and honor this dish. After the break, On Breaks the Pho Moratorium.
You deserve a kitchen that works for you. Kohler's sinks come in varying depths and basins so that you get your perfect fit. Their workstation sinks provide accessories to support all of your washing, rinsing, and storage needs. All of Kohler's sinks and faucets are designed to make your kitchen look its best while still getting your cooking goals accomplished. And what a relief that is, especially during the holidays. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Hey, Proof listeners, Kevin Pang here. I'm on the record as a mango lover. There's nothing better than a juicy, ripe, perfectly naturally sweet mango. But it has me wondering, if you're at the store, how can you tell a mango is juicy, ripe, and ready to eat? Well, lucky for me, my colleague Sasha Coleman, a test cook at America's Test Kitchen, knows just the technique when it comes to spotting a ripe mango. Hey, Sasha. Hey, Kevin. So I've seen a lot of mango varieties at the store, and they come in many different colors. So I feel like judging the ripeness by how red or yellow the mangoes are. And that doesn't really work. So tell me, how do you know when mangoes are ripe? There are a lot of different mango varieties available year-round. There's Tommy Atkins, there's Honey, there's Kent, you name it. So don't judge a mango by its color. What I like to do is pick one up and squeeze it gently. If there's a little gift to the mango, it's likely ripe. Oh, that's interesting. So pick it up, use your hands, give it a gentle squeeze. It shouldn't be too firm or too mushy. If there's just a little bit of a give, that's how I can tell it's ripe. Exactly. Well, how about that? Go to mango.org slash proof for tantalizing mango recipes and to learn more about mangoes. And now, back to our story. In a strange twist, days after I decided to make a vegetarian pho, I found out about a social media backlash. It made me question whether I should even consider making a vegetarian pho in the first place. This is what happened. Celebrated chef Eric Repair was promoting a new cookbook and had an Instagram post for what he claimed to be vegetarian pho. But the photo suggests otherwise. In the post, he is holding up long strands of noodles with chopsticks. But they were clearly not pho noodles, the essential ingredient that gives the dish its name. The bowl of soup in the photo was Instagram pretty, but lacked the soul of pho. Any noodles plus broth does not equal pho. In the comments, some people were quick to set him straight. People expressed dismay about the noodle choice, but they were also appalled that he didn't take the time to truly understand the dish. This controversy wasn't the first time Andrea Nguyen has been asked to weigh in on whether someone got it wrong about Vietnamese food. So she has a tip to help people get it right. Despite what people think that I am a hard ass, I am not a hard ass. But what I do ask people to do is take a look at what the food is. It's about respecting what makes pho, pho, and starting from there. It's not about who made the pho. Everybody gets to make pho. Everybody gets to speak about pho. But when you speak about pho, you need to be informed about what pho is and what it isn't. When I was growing up, there wasn't much concern about the cultural authenticity of Vietnamese food because it was mostly Vietnamese people who made it. But now Vietnamese cuisine is enjoyed by non-Vietnamese people too. Pho has made its way into pop culture. 
There are even several rap songs that pay homage to the dish. Here is DJ and producer Sabzi. For a six-foot producer with the real heavy appetite I got a hankering, I'm trying to get my tummy right With some rice noodles, in some beef broth Basil in the mint leaves, drown in the hoisin sauce When you want it, not really much to say Perhaps there has been no bigger fan of this iconic dish than an icon himself. Anthony Bourdain was a giant in the food world. In his travel shows, he demonstrated to viewers that he went further than just enjoying food in other cultures. He looked deeper to appreciate the people who made it and to understand the places he visited. He traveled to Vietnam a number of times on his shows, and he was captivated by pho. This is from the show No Reservations. Maybe it's a pheromonic thing, like love at first sight. But for me, a good bowl of pho will always make me happy. Take me to that special place where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Anthony Bourdain left us much too soon. But through his travel shows, writings, and observations, he clearly demonstrated that curiosity enhances the exploration of foods and cultures. And I think curiosity is the key ingredient I need. To make vegetarian pho, I will also take on Andrea's mindset, her beginner's approach to trying something new. On a Saturday in February, my family and I are together and unrushed. That's such a rarity these days. It was the perfect time to make vegetarian pho. For every pot of pho I have ever made, I begin this one the exact same way. The first step is char-grilling a yellow onion and knobs of ginger sliced in half. These aromatics will be added to the broth later for a warm and smoky flavor. My husband, Reese, was my sous chef. I'm going to have you um, grill the onions and the ginger for me, okay? I'm going to do it on this um, small barbecue. And so we have some open flame there. And uh, I'll do it just together and then just blacken it a little bit. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. You know the drill. Are you excited, Carice? Yeah. Yeah. So I just started the first side and uh, I'll flip it over here probably in about 10 minutes. It smells amazing. I mean, to me, when I'm making pho, that char grilling of the onion and the ginger it's so fragrant. It really, to me, is the signature smell or the beginning of making the broth. Don't you think? I agree. It's almost, it's, when you were saying that, it was funny because when I took a, a, a smell of that, you almost can smell the broth. Right? Yeah, you could, that's the beginning yeah. of the broth. Right. I go back inside the house to start the broth. I pulled out the pho cookbook by Andrea Nguyen. Let's go page 53. Okay, so I am going to turn to page 53. This is called Vegetarian Quote-Unquote Chicken Pho. Full disclosure here, I make a few substitutions based on ingredients I had or didn't have. I've always been a bit heavy-handed on spices that I like. Take, for instance, ginger. I usually double the amount a recipe calls for. I take out vegetables from the fridge and check to make sure I have all the other ingredients for the broth. So this is, um, I need cloves, coriander seeds, ginger, yellow onion, water, apple, celery stalks, 
carrots, napa cabbage, cilantro, sea salt. Oh, yeast powder, I don't have that, but I'm gonna omit it. You know, mommy, I'm always kind of like altering recipes a little bit. For the toppings, this is what I'll use. So instead of like meat, I'm gonna have green beans and mushrooms and tofu. Where do you want me to put the cabbage? Put it here, I'm gonna cut it. Is the cabbage part of the broth yep. or topping? That's for the broth. Once the veggies are chopped, they're ready for the pot. I'm gonna put the water in the stock pot now. The water's going into the pot. Have the Fuji apple, cabbage, carrots, daikon radish. I'm gonna put in the char-grilled ginger and onions that daddy grilled outside. And I'm gonna put in the spice powder. And then I think we just boil it for like about an hour. And then I'll get the other ingredients. Here she goes. There's a lot going on in the kitchen. Ezwin volunteers to make the braised tofu for one of the toppings. The recipe is also from the Fa cookbook. While she works on the tofu, I measure out the spices for the broth. It's fairly simple. Cloves, coriander seeds. It's starting to smell a lot like pho. At one point, things got too hot under the lid. My son Trevin came to the rescue. Oh, 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 it's oh, overboiling. Oh, oh, turn it, oh, oh, turn it down, turn it down. Woo. A bit of a mess, but we managed to get back on track. Once the broth was simmering for over an hour, I decided to sample it. Trevin hovered over the pot, scrutinizing the carrots, cabbage, and an apple he cored and cut up. How does it look, Trevin? Looks amazing. Do you think it looks like pho? No. <laughs> There's apples in there. Mm. Tastes good. It actually does taste quite good. I'm, I'm kind of proud of us. Does it taste I was like nervous. Pho broth though? I mean, it's different. As the broth bubbles up, so do the memories. Eswin remembered this about her ba. There's like a few memories that specifically stick out. The one that I always think about is when I must have been like Carissa's age, probably younger. Younger, because she's 12 now and you were 10 when Ba died. Yeah, so probably younger. And I came downstairs in her house and her, her kitchen is kind of like, you can tell it's kind of older. And the, the table, like the breakfast table, it's always really weird because the chairs are like plasticky. So when you're wearing shorts, they like stick to your legs. But I remember, I, she asked me what I want for breakfast, and I'm sure like she was expecting like cereal or something like that, and I said a pho, and she was really surprised, and I remember her laughing, but like nonetheless, she made it for me. And I actually learned, I didn't know this, but Vietnamese people actually often eat pho for breakfast, so I felt kind of in the know on that day. I felt like kind of cool. Before I even served the pho, I realized it almost didn't matter anymore how it would taste. It would be great if it's delicious, but perhaps that wasn't what I needed. I've never been able to make my pho taste like my mom's anyways. She was in a league of her own. But my kids, they will have memories of what my pho tastes like. 
and I think they will remember our vegetarian pho making operation. Do I wish with all my heart my family could taste my mom's pho one more time? Absolutely. Do I wish we could all have more time with my mom? More than I could ever express in words. I accept that the memory, culture, and food attachment loop in the brain doesn't turn off. It keeps going. But life makes room for new attachments too. Pho is a dish that has evolved over time. And so shall I. The aroma in my kitchen is divine. The scent of fresh herbs along with the steam rising from the pot fill my kitchen and my heart. Listen, since you're tall, can you grab those bowls? Five of them. Bowls are coming down. When the bowls come down, you know that's when you're about to eat. Noodles first, then toppings. This version has braised tofu, green beans, and shiitake mushrooms. And as always, fresh cilantro and green onions. I ladle the broth for the finish. Everyone gets their own plate of limes and Thai basil. I'm kind of impressed with us, guys. I know, it's really good. Mm. Do you feel like this would be satisfying to eat if you never ate meat again? Um, yeah, I think it would be. I would give it an 8 out of 10 because it's, it's, it's really not the same. It's really good, but mm-hmm. it's not the same as the original. It doesn't have that richness and I that think it has flavor. A richness. Eswin in particular defends my pho. And then mommy. This is how Bob taught me how to do it. So you layer with like a little bit of. Um, oh yeah, that's how she she taught me with a noodle. And then you put like some. Usually it would be like beef or chicken, but this time it's the tofu. You put that on top, and then you take the 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 herbs and the onion. And then you get a little bit of broth, and it's like the perfect bite. That's how she taught me, too. I always do that. Over the course of several hours, we chopped, we cooked, we reminisced. As the sun was setting, we had finally shared an authentic bowl of homemade vegetarian pho. The pho moratorium has ended. Making pho has been one of the rituals that has tethered me to my mom and my roots. It is an act of remembrance. I will always continue this tradition as one way for me to connect my children to their heritage and our family history. When I think of my mom, I get it now. As she prepared her dishes all those years ago, she was also delivering a message. Food is legacy. It is what you have left, and it's also what you pass on. Thanks to Andre for bringing us today's story. You can hear more of the Fa song by Richie Lee featuring AJ Raphael and DJ Sabzi songs What's Up Fam on YouTube. Seriously, their music videos are pretty awesome. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. 
I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cardarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton, Chester Guasta, and Anya Gzeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music, additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of post-production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Andrea Nguyen, Twee Vo Dang, An's cousin Amory Trong, and An's family. Thanks also to John S. Allen for his input. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors Kohler, the National Mango Board, Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts, Fresh Pressed Olive Oil, and the Naked Lunch Podcast. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.